So let's start sectionalism between the North and South. This is 1844 to 1860. We're going to start off with Mexican secession. Now, we've talked a little bit about the Wilmot Proviso, but we're going to go into a little bit more depth here. So, the secession itself, uh, there's going to be an intense debate that will go over whether slavery should be allowed in the Mexican secession. So, that's where the Wilmot Proviso comes in. Now, this is going to be 1848. And it's going to be a proposed law by the House, but as you know, it was defeated in the Senate in order to forbid slavery in the Mexican secession. Now, it was supposed to... It was supposed to be supported by the Northern Free Soilers and the Abolitionists, but it's going to end up being blocked in Congress, specifically by Southern Senators, because, you know, this is kind of interfering with their way of life, of let's keep people... To do our work but not pay them or treat them like people uh, southerners were really infuriated that southern soldiers had helped win the mexican-american war but that northerners would try to exclude slavery from their quote-unquote hard won their hard-won territory now the significance of this was that the wilmot proviso is going to bring slavery into the forefront of american politics up until the civil war this issue is going to threaten to split both the Whigs and the Democrats along these sectional lines of slavery and no slavery, or slave state and no state, or no slave state. Now, popular sovereignty. This is going to emerge as a way to avoid the issue of slavery in the Mexican secession and other western territories. So, this basically means that the sovereign people of a territory should decide for themselves the status of slavery. Uh, Louis Cass, C-A-S-S, the uh, Democratic candidate for president in 1848, is going to induce the idea of popular sovereignty. So it kind of takes it away from Congress and puts it in the hands of the individual territories of the individual states so the federal government can wash their hands of it. So the idea was supported this popular sovereignty, by many because it appealed to the democratic tradition of local rights. Uh, politicians saw it as a viable compromise between extending slavery, which was the southern view, and banning it, which was the northern Whigs' view. Popular sovereignty proved inadequate in averting a civil war, obviously, because we had one. Now, the election of 1848. The Whigs are going to nominate Zachary Taylor. He's considered to be the hero of Buena Vista. He appeared highly electable as he was neutral on the slave issue, but he owned slaves on his Louisiana sugar plantation. So, obviously, he wasn't neutral. <clears throat> That's just what he said on TV, even though we didn't have TV. But you know what I mean. The Democrats are going to go for this Lewis Cass. The new Free Soil Party nominated the former president, Martin Van Buren. And this... The Free Soil Party was a coalition of Northern anti-slavery Whigs and Democrats and Liberty Party members. It's going to support the Wilmot Proviso and oppose slavery in the territories. The whole idea of free soil, free speech, free labor, late labor, labor, and free men. It sought federal aid for internal improvements and free government homesteads for settlers in the West. The party is going to end up foreshadowing the emergence of the Republican Party six years later. 
Now, the Electoral College results were that Taylor had 163, Cass 127, and the Free Solars Van Buren, none. So, since they won at no states, they would not actually impact the outcome of the election like we had seen previously. So, sectional issues by 1850 are going to deeply divide the nation. California's application for statehood is going to threaten the sectional balance. We also had the gold rush. So, gold was discovered in 1848 at Sutter's Mill in Sacramento. Prospectors became known as 48ers. You probably know them as 49ers, which would come later, obviously. Uh, their numbers were relatively small compared to the mass migration that followed a year later. That's where we got the 49ers who would descend on Northern California. Gold essentially paved the way for rapid economic growth in California, and it hasn't stopped since. San Francisco sprouted up in just months. Northern California became the state's main population center, and by 1850, California's population had grown from 14,000 to over 100,000. Me and Chaz were watching 911 the other night. The, not the, like, real life, the TV show. Anyway, and they talked about L.A. being a small town. So we looked up how many they had. More than the state of Arkansas. That's why they have so many electoral votes. Anyway, California drafted a constitution in 1849 that excluded slavery and asked Congress for admission as a state. California would bypass the entire territorial phase, blocking southern hopes to spread slavery there. Southerners opposed California statehood, obviously, viewing another free state as a threat to the sectional balance. But if you really look at it, it would be that way either way. <clears throat> when California applied for statehood, Southern fire eaters threatened secession, so they're already threatening to leave. The New Mexico and Utah territories also leaned toward free states status. Along with California, the number of free states would tip decisively in favor of the North. The Underground Railroad and the fugitive slave issue infuriated the Southerners. The issue seemed further proof of, for Southerners that the North did not respect the Constitution's protection for slavery. By 1850, Southerners demanded a new, stronger fugitive slave law, as extending the law dating back to the 1790s was weak. Um, about a thousand runaways successfully escaped per year. Though this is a small in number, more slaves bought their freedom than ran away. Some northern states, like Pennsylvania, refused to cooperate, and southerners blame abolitionists and claim they operated outside the law. Texas claimed a vast disputed area east of the Rio Grande. And this is going to include part of eastern New Mexico, Colorado, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Texas also threatened to seize Santa Fe, New Mexico, New Mexico's largest city. The federal government did not accept Texas's land claims, and President Taylor threatened to send troops to Texas if it moved on any of the territories in question. Northerners demanded the abolition of slavery and slave auctions in Washington, D.C. Many were embarrassed that the nation's capital contained thousands of slaves, while slave auctions occurred within sight of the Capitol building and foreign visitors who were already kind of putting the kibosh on the idea of slavery. The Nashville Convention of Southern Fire Eaters was due to convene in June 1850 for the purpose of discussing Southern rights and secession should California be admitted into the Union. 
Many saw this as an ominous sign of disunion if no compromise was reached quickly. So, of course, you get a compromise. Compromise of 1850. Henry Clay initiated his third and final great compromise. He proposed that the North should pass a more effective fugitive law. John C. Calhoun, who was currently dying of TB, rejected Clay's <clears throat> position as inadequate. He demanded that abolitionists leave slavery alone, that the North return runaway slaves, and that the political balance be restored. His scheme included having two presidents, one for the North and one for the South, meaning a concurrent majority. Daniel Webster supported Clay. This is the, he gave his famous 7th of March speech. He urged reasonable concessions to the South, including a tough fugitive slave law. He opposed Congress legislating in the territory since the climate was not conducive for growing cotton. And ironically, California became a leading cotton producer. Now, Webster is going to help the North toward compromise. You're going to have abolitionist Brand Webster as a traitor, while Webster detested abolitionists as a threat to national unity. William H. Seward, S-E-W-A-R-D, also known as Higher Law Seward. Uh, he was a younger Northern radical who opposed granting concessions to the South. He stated Christian legislators must obey God's moral law as well as man's law. He claimed slavery shouldn't be allowed in the Western territories due to a higher law than the Constitution, hence the higher law Seward. Even with this, the threat of war is going to persist. President Taylor, who was swayed by Seward, seemed against concessions to the South. Taylor was determined to send troops to Texas if it attacked New Mexico, and this would basically have started a civil war. President Taylor died of gastroenteritis in 1850 and was succeeded by Vice President Millard Fillmore, who supported the compromise. Senator Stephen Douglas was the most important in getting the bill passed through Congress. So the actual compromise, uh, California is going to be admitted as a free state. The slave, tra slave trade will be abolished in the District of Columbia. Popular sovereignty sovereignty is going to be applied to the Mexican secession, meaning New Mexico and the Utah ter territories. The most stringent fugitive slave laws will be passed, and Texas will receive $10 million from the federal government for surrendering its claim to the disputed territory in New Mexico. Now the results. The fugitive slave law will become the single most important frictional issue between the North and the South in the early 1850s. The fugitive slave law may have been a major blunder, but the South, by the South, <clears throat> as Northerners saw it as appalling. The abolitionist movement was given a boost because of this. Slaves could not testify on their own behalf and were denied a, a jury trial because they weren't considered citizens. Heavy fines and jail sentences would be given to those who aided and abetted runaways because of this fugitive slave law. Now, some states are going to refuse to accept the law. Massachusetts made it illegal to enforce it. This is going to be seen by the South as a move toward nullification. And other states are going to pass personal liberty laws denying local jails to federal officials. In the Supreme Court, Supreme Court case... Abelman versus Booth in 1859, the, the court will uphold the fugitive slave law. Now, the North is going to get the better end of the deal. California will tip the Senate in favor of the North. Popular sovereignty in New Mexico and U the Utah desert probably favored the North. 
The $10 million given to Texas was a modest sum, while the new area it claimed was almost certain to be a free state. And the halt of the slave trade in Washington, D.C. was a step toward emancipating it. All right, the election of 1852. The Democrats nominated Franklin Pierce from New Hampshire. He was sympathetic to Southern views and acceptable to the slavery wing of the party. His campaign came out in favor of the Compromise of 1850. The Whigs nominated General Winfield Scott, but the party was fatally split. Anti-slaveryites supported Scott, but hated his support of the Fugitive Slave Law. Southern Whigs supported the Fugitive Slave Law, but questioned Scott's willingness to enforce it. Pierce is going to end up defeating Scott 254 to 42 in the Electoral College. This is going to mark the effective end of the Whig Party. So with the Whig Party shattered by sectionalism, only the Democratic Party will remain as a truly national party. Expansionism. So with President Pierce, we're going to get expansionism. So this, it was coined the Young America. Pierce is going to seek to end manifest destiny overseas. And... Oh, jeez, sorry. Some leaders, especially Southerners, sought to gain land overseas for the expansion of slavery, especially in Cuba. American expansion overseas would be realized as a result of the Spanish-American War in 1898, but not in the 1850s. Asia, the acquisition of California and Oregon in the 1840s gave the U.S. access to the Pacific. The U.S. signed trade agreements with China, and in 1853, Pierce sent Commodore Matthew Perry on a second expedition to force Japan to open trade with the U.S. Fillmore had originally ordered the expedition in 1852 to free U.S. whaling ships that were not allowed to leave Japan. Although Japan opened trade and began to industrialize, the event signaled the beginning of poor U.S.-Japanese relations that would lead to Japan's attack later on Pearl Harbor in 1941. The Kansas-Nebraska Act. Now, this is going to be the most important short-term causes of the Civil War. You have the Gasden Purchase, G-A-D-S-D-E-N. It's going to be in 1853. So, this is when the U.S. is wanting a transcontinental railroad to connect California and Oregon to the rest of the country. So, there's going to be sea routes from the East Coast. These were considered impractical, and it's going to leave the West Coast militarily vulnerable. There's going to be issues in Congress, though. Should the future transcontinental railroad route run through the north or the south? The railroad would provide enormous benefits to the region, whether, it, you know, whoever it was that received it. And the best route seemed to be a southern route, partly because of Mexican border, so as to circumvent the Rocky Mountains. In 1853, the U.S. purchased the Mesilla Valley, or Mesilla Valley, in southern New Mexico and Arizona from Mexico for $10 million. The South now had the advantage regarding the railroad. After the Gasden purchase, the U.S. border below Canada and above Mexico was complete. Stephen Douglas proposed splitting the Nebraska Territory into two, Nebraska and Kansas, not North Nebraska. In effect, this was a northern response to the Gasden Purchase. Douglas sought to make his home state of Illinois the eastern terminus for the Transcontinental Railroad. Kansas would presumably be a slave state. Nebraska would be free. The slavery issue would be based on popular sovereignty again. However, Kansas was above the 3630 line, which prohibited slavery north of it. 
solution. Repeal the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Southerners fully supported it and pushed Pierce to support it. The bill passed in 1854 as Douglas guided it through Congress. Northerners were shocked as they saw the Compromise of 1820 as a sacred pact. Many Northerners now refused to honor the Fugitive Slave Law. The anti-slavery movement grew significantly from this. And the North became unwilling to compromise on future issues. The bill effectively wrecked the compromises of 1820 and 1850. Douglas miscalculated the adverse impact of the law on the North. This is where we're going to get the birth of the Republican Party. So the Republican Party formed in response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It included Whigs, Northern Democrats, Free Soilers, and increasingly the group called the Know-Nothings. Abraham Lincoln came out of political retirement and ran for the Illinois Senate Senate as a direct response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It emerged as the nation's second major political party quickly and overcame strong competition from the know-nothings. The Republican Party was not allowed in the South. Bleeding Kansas, New England Immigrant Aid Company. It sent 2,000 men into Kansas to stop slavery from spreading there. Many came armed with breech-loading rifles, also known as Beecher's. Beecher's Bibles. Southerners were furious that the North betrayed the spirit of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The law implied that Kansas would become slave and Nebraska would become free. Armed Southerners came into Kansas to resist Northerners. Ironically, only two slaves actually lived in Kansas in 1860. In 1855, an election was held in Kansas for its first territorial legislature. Pro-slavery border ruffians from Missouri Missouri poured into Kansas, vote early and vote, vote often, meaning it was, you know, they were voting, but not legally. Southerners won the election and created a puppet government. Free Soilers ignored the bogus election and created its own government in Topeka. So we've got two governments in one state. In 1856, a pro-slavery gang attacked and burned part of the Free Solar town of Lawrence, Kansas. In May, tw- May of 1856, May 22nd to be exact, Charles Sumner is going to be canned. He's an abolitionist senator from Massachusetts who gave an inflammatory speech, The Crime Against Kansas, where he condemned pro-slavery Southerners and insulted one of its senators. South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks retaliated by savagely beating Sumner with an 11-ounce gold-headed cane. So now we're getting extreme. The House of Representatives didn't have the votes to expel Brooks, but he resigned anyway, and he was unanimously re-elected by South Carolina, although he died several months later. The beating demonstrated the hatred brewing in Congress between the North and the South. May 24th through 25th of 56 was the Pottawatomie Massacre. John Brown and his sons slaughtered five men in revenge for the attack on Lawrence and the caning of Summer, Sumner. Brown, an extreme abolitionist, saw himself doing God's work. Brown will escape justice. A mini-civil war will begin in Kansas in 1856 that continued through the U.S. Civil War. 1857, we get the Lecompton Constitution. It's L-E-C-O-M-P-T-O-N. In 1857, Kansas applied for statehood based on popular sovereignty. Southerners in control drafted a pro-slavery constitution. People would vote for the constitution either with or without slavery. If people voted no on slavery, the rights of slaveholders currently in Kansas would be protected nonetheless. Free Soilers again refused to vote for a southern-dominated constitution. 
Slave supporters approved the Constitution with slavery late in 1857. President Buchanan supported the, supported the Constitution, and Senator Douglas led the opposition to it. The Constitution was sent back to Kansas for another vote, but pro-slavery Kansas rejected the proposal. This was supposed to be a compromise. And the result of this was that free soilers were victorious. Kansas was denied statehood until 1861 after the South seceded when it entered as a free state. Now, this Kansas issue is going to shatter the Democratic Party. Buchanan's support for Kansas split the Democratic Party along sectional lines. Stephen Douglas's opposition for Kansas alienated him from Southerners. The Republicans could win in 1860 at the expense of split Democrats who could not agree on Stephen Douglas's nomination. With the Whig and Democratic parties shattered in the 1850s, no national party existed that could hold the Union together. Now we get into some anti-slavery literature. Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1852. He portrayed to the North the evils of slavery by focusing on the splitting of slave families and the physical abuse of slaves. The novel was inspired by the fugitive slave law. Stowe was influenced by the evangelism of the Second Great Awakening. The novel became the bestseller of all time in proportion to the U.S. population. It had more social impact than any other novel in U.S. history. Lincoln who introduced who was introduced to her in 1862 said so you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war the abolitionist movement will grow in response to her book and obviously the south is going to condemn it Hilton Helper wrote The Impending Crisis of the South in 57. He was a white writer from North Carolina who hated slavery and blacks. He argued that non-slave holding whites indirectly suffered most from slavery. The book was published in the North but not, could not be published in the South. The impact was that there was a negligible amount um, of people who actually would read it, the targeted audience. This was the poor Southern whites for, you know, a lot of times are illiterate anyway <clears throat> at this time. Uh, it was used by Republicans as propaganda in the 59 campaign. Southerners were infuriated that Northerners would use the book against them. It provoked secession of sentiment in the South, and within two years, 15 novels were written in response by pro-slavery writers. The election of 56 saw James Buchanan nominated by the Democrats. Captain John C. Fremont were nominated by the Republicans. And this is the American Party is going to start to emerge, the Know Nothings. These are going to be white Anglo Saxon Protestants who, who opposed, who were opposed to Irish, German, Mexican, and Chinese immigration. They were anti Catholic. And the ex president, Millard Fillmore, is nominated as their candidate. The Dred Scott case. Of 57, March 6. Dred Scott had lived with his master for five years in Illinois and the Wisconsin Territories. Backed by abolitionists, he sued for freedom on the basis he lived on free soil. Chief Justice Roger Taney wrote the opinion. Taney had been a Jacksonian who helped destroy the Bank of the United States with the Pet Bank scheme. As Chief Justice, he vigorously defended slavery. Dred Scott was a black slave and not a citizen and could not sue in federal court. This is his opinion. As a result, all blacks, north and south, were no longer citizens. Slaves could not be taken away from owners without due process of law, and the Missouri Compromise was declared unconstitutional. It's going to contribute to the split in the Democratic Party because most, southerners, sorry, most northern supporters of popular sovereignty 
were horrified, including Stephen Douglas. The Lincoln-Douglas debate of 58. Republican Abraham Lincoln challenged Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas for the Illinois Senate seat in 1858. Douglas was one of the most high-profile and influential senators of the 1850s and led the Democratic personality for president. Lincoln's nomination speak, speech, a house divided cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. Douglas, or sorry, Lincoln challenged Douglas to seven debates in Illinois. 